Well, we are learning in this wonderful progression of chapter 6 of Romans that everyone who has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ through grace alone and faith alone in Christ, all who have been justified by Christ are of necessity sanctified by Him. We are new creatures in Christ who are walking in what Paul calls newness of life. Another way of saying that is we've been called to holiness. This is a call to holiness. And Paul wants us to understand that just as Christ was crucified and died for us, we in God's mind died with Christ on that cross. We were crucified with Him, buried with Him, but not only that, raised from the dead with Him. Spiritually, we have been raised from the dead to a newness of life where now we serve the Lord Jesus Christ as His slaves. We are no longer slaves of sin. We've been freed from that. Freed in this sense from the power of sin, from the domination, from the tyranny that sin is and was in our old lives. We've been freed from that by the power of the gospel and by his marvelous, superabounding grace. And we are now slaves of righteousness. And so we are learning what it means to walk in this newness of life. Last week we were looking at verses 19 through 22 and we really saw two progressions, two directions that everyone uh, experiences, one or the other. Either a progression of Sin unto death, verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And we saw that in verse 21 that the end of those things is death. That path only leads to death. Also, there is a path that leads to righteousness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness, Unto holiness or for holiness, for that purpose. And that purpose has another end. And that end we see in verse 22, we'll see today, is not death but everlasting life. And so we are considering these two paths, these two progressions. One of sin, one of righteousness. And we are all slaves. The question is, whose slave are you? Are you a slave of sin To serve sin and fulfill sin's every desire? Or are you a slave of righteousness? Progressing in the path of sanctification, becoming more and more separated from sin and your old manner of life, and becoming more um, of an image bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Today we are going to consider three purposes that Paul outlines, I believe, in verse 22. Three purposes. The first is this. We're going to look at the purpose of freedom. The purpose of freedom. Secondly, we're going to see the purpose of fruitfulness. And thirdly, we're going to see the purpose of holiness. Holiness. So, the purpose of freedom, fruitfulness, and holiness. Let's look first at this purpose of freedom that Paul explains in verse 22. He starts by saying, but now. But now, at this very moment... Having been set free from sin. You see, brothers and sisters, every Christian is able to proclaim with the Apostle Paul, but now. I have a moment in my life, or I I had a, a time in my life when I wasn't like this, but now I have a newness of life. 
You see, we were enslaved to sin and uncleanness, and we were free, quote-unquote, from righteousness, meaning we were altogether out of its domain. It did not control us. Rather, the converse, we were controlled by sin. We produced nothing but bad fruit, of which we are now ashamed, and that only leads to death. But now, a great transformation has taken place. This is not something the world can say. The world doesn't have a but-now moment. The world is always the same because their evil, wicked heart has never changed. It's a heart of unbelief. And so, yes, their outward circumstances may change. In the analogy of a, a house, they may move the furniture around. They may rearrange the rooms. But really, at the end of the day, the house is the same. It's a house of corruption. We as Christians have been made new. The Lord Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and his grace, has demolished our old house. And he's rebuilding a new house fit for himself to dwell in by the Holy Spirit of God. We have a but now moment. I love this analogy that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave when he talked about this point. He said, it is not only history that is divided between B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord, Anno, Anno Domini, but every Christian life has a B.C. and an A.D. in it. But now, we have been set free from sin. This is Again, some review, but important for us to set our minds on and, and relish. Having been set free from sin, this is in the aorist, the past tense, and it's in the passive. So he's saying, this is something that is already true of you. You've been set free from sin. And we saw this is the Lord's work for us and in us. It's the Spirit of God that has freed us from the power of sin. And, and brothers and sisters, there must be this break with the old life of sin in order for you to be a true Christian. Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, notice there is a transaction that has taken place here. We've been moved out of the slave market of sin and into the slavery which is true freedom. Slavery to righteousness. Slavery to God. And there is no lapse in time between these two slaveries. We are immediately pulled out from one and immediately put into another Having become enslaved to God is literally what the text says in the Greek. This is now our new position. We've been purchased by God. Ransomed. That's what that word means. Purchased by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the payment, the penalty that was required for our sin. And so we are owned now by God. We are slaves of His. And what is the purpose of this freedom? Paul states it like this, you have your fruit unto holiness. You have your fruit unto holiness. That is the purpose of freedom. The ESV states it this way, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's pretty good, but it's not quite the sense, I think, of what Paul is saying in the Greek. What I mean by that is that could be misunderstood as something forward-looking, something we are yet to receive in the future. He's not saying that. The New American Standard, the LSB are much closer. They say you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. That's good. That's good. But I believe what is best here, what is most true to the Greek is you have your fruit unto holiness. He's using the present tense. 
And brothers and sisters, this is, this is really the second proof that we know we are no longer slaves of sin. We talked last time about how this last section of Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, is really a proof, an explanation, a, 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 um, an evidence, I should say, that we have, in fact, been freed from slavery to sin and have been made slaves of righteousness. How do we know? Well, we saw first in verse um, 16. Um, we saw first in verse 17, excuse me, this. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So the first evidence that we were no longer, are no longer slaves of sin is our obedience from the heart to what? The Word of God. That's that mold, that form of doctrine uh, to which we have been delivered. We've been poured literally into that mold of God's Word and we are taking its shape. That was evidence number one. We believed and we obeyed from the heart what God's Word said. His gospel came to us in power and we believed it. Here's proof number two that we know we've been freed from sin. You have your fruit to holiness. Fruitfulness is an evidence, is, a, is an evidence that you are freed from sin. And like I say, this is given in the present tense, present active indicative, in fact. It, it means you have, this is something that you have now, it is continuous, and it is a statement of fact. All Christians, in other words, have fruit. They must. That's what it means to be a Christian. But what is this fruit that he speaks of? Let's turn... Um, to Galatians chapter 5. Let's look at this together. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. These are the, called the fruits of the Spirit in contrast to the fruits so-called of the flesh, the works of the flesh, which he outlined in verses 19 through 21, in which we covered last time. Those works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the fruit of the slave to sin. That's what he looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is these other qualities. In fact, nine of them. These are character traits. They're attitudes of the heart and resulting conduct from those attitudes of every believer who is of necessity led by the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit of God. So notice there's not just one fruit, right? There's a variety of fruit. God loves variety. There are nine fruits that he speaks of. And he says, if you're a believer, you have your fruit now. Present tense. Um, Back in Romans chapter 5, this is a little bit of review for those of you who have been with us through this series, but 
it just was so wonderful as I was preparing to think back on what we've already covered that really ties in so nicely with what we're talking about today. Um, Chapter 5, we saw some of these fruits in action already. He talks about the love of God that we have in our hearts, right? A love of God in verse 5 of chapter 5 that has been poured out, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He talks about a joy that we've been given when he says that we rejoice and hope in the glory of God in verse 2 of chapter 5. And not only that, but we rejoice in God himself in verse 11 of chapter 5. There's the joy. We have joy. We also have peace. How? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith, the first verse of chapter 5. There's peace. Peace being exercised. We also have long-suffering. In verse 4, he says, um, well, reading into it, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That's the Greek word that means long-suffering, to bear up under pressures and trials. We have that. He is working that out in us in order to produce His proven character and more hope in us. And Paul's going to say in chapter 15, I'm confident concerning you, speaking to the Romans, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness. Goodness. And in chapters 3 and 4, when we had our great discussion on justification by faith, that was all about faith, exercising the gift of faith given by God back toward God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so many of these fruits of the Spirit, he says, you have. They're already evident among you. A variety of fruits. But what is the common thread that pulls them all together to these nine These are fruits of the one Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who is also referred to as the Spirit of Christ. So really, these are the attitudes and character traits of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what Jesus looks like, if you just want to look at his attributes, the fruit of the Spirit. This is Christ's fruit. It's his character. It's a picture of the life of Christ. Now, how does that relate to us? Look at Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. We are now sharing in the very life of Christ. So, the character traits of the believer are the character and conduct of Christ. His character is being formed in us, is a better way of saying it. These are His fruits that are being produced in His people. Brothers and sisters, how does this happen? What is the mechanism for fruitfulness? Good fruit, Scripture says, always comes from a good tree. Always comes from a good tree. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. That's pretty clear. It's not possible for good fruit to be taken from worthless thorns and thistles that are highly flammable and only good to be destroyed No, good fruit only comes from a good tree. The problem is we all were bad trees by nature. 
That's what Scripture teaches. Previously, as slaves to sin, all we could manifest were the fruits of the flesh. Paul calls it the unfruitful works of darkness in Ephesians 5. Because we were bad trees. We were corrupted by sin. We, we had that old sin nature who enslaved us and, if you want to think about it this way, hijacked our members to do exactly as he pleased. We were totally given over to old man's sin. But now, but now, you have your fruit to holiness. Brothers and sisters, what does that tell us? It tells us that our nature must have changed, right? We now have become good trees. I love how Isaiah speaks of this in his prophecy in chapter 55. He says, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Thorns and briars, thorns and thistles, where did that start? That started in the garden. That was the curse on the ground for the sin of Adam and Eve. Worthlessness, toil, hard work in order to just make bread. That is a picture of everyone who is born in this world. We are by nature thorns and thistles, thorns and briars. But thank God that's not the end of the story. God in his mercy and compassion, he converts us into cypress trees and myrtle trees. What are those? Those are big, strong trees in the ancient Near East. Those are trees that are known for their strength. They're known for their smell, their aroma. I didn't know about the myrtle tree. I was reading up on the myrtle. The myrtle is said to have a, a smell that is more exquisite than that of a rose. It's wonderful. It has shiny green leaves and it has these white flowers that are ringed in purple. Very aromatic. This is something of a picture so we understand the new nature that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's made us good trees. Able to make good fruit. This is a sovereign work of God in us. You can't make yourself a good tree. You must be born again. That's the language of Scripture. The Lord must convert you. Paul already spoke of this idea in verse 5 of chapter 6 really well, and I just want to revisit this with you. Verse 5 of chapter 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. When he says united together, the word he's using there is grafted into, planted together with. With what? With Christ. With Christ. You see, we are all bad trees by nature, but there is only one good tree. One good tree that stands in the garden, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned, always did what was right. We've been grafted into him. And it's by virtue of that grafting, that planting into him, that we have become good trees. You see, we're not good trees standing alone apart from Christ. We're only good because we've been made part of the good tree, Jesus himself. Thank you, Lord. Let me give you a, another illustration of how this fruitfulness comes about. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. <clears throat> This is the parable of the, so the sower or the parable of the soils. And I just want to read a few excerpts here together. Um, starting in verse 3, Matthew 13, 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we have a wonderful explanation of this parable by the Lord himself in verse 18 and following. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles or is offended. Verse 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So here we have, by way of a farming analogy, a picture of how God produces fruitfulness in our lives. He is the sower of the seed. The seed is his word, the word of God. And what he does is he spreads that seed onto different types of soil. There's three types of soil that are bad soil. They're bad because they don't ultimately result in deep root and fruitfulness. There's only one kind of soil that is a good soil. And it is a soil that takes root when the seed enters it and when it is watered. And that seed then produces a plant. And that plant makes fruit. It must. It always does. The difference is the level of fruitfulness. Notice, all, all Christians don't make the same level of fruit. Some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. We all have differing abilities to make fruit by God's design. But the point is this, we all bear fruit. No one who is in the good soil, which represents the human heart, no one who has a new heart, which is given by God, tilled like the farmer would till and prepare for the seed, and then the seed comes in, and then the water comes in to cause it to germinate. That cannot happen apart from the sovereign kindness of God. That is a picture of what is happening here this morning. And in every gospel-preaching church, as the word of God is proclaimed, it goes into the hearts of people. The question is, is your heart good? Has it been made good? Are you a good tree so that you can make good fruit? The Word of God accomplishes all His good pleasure. I want to show you just a, another illustration of this in action. Th these are principles that help us to understand a concept, right? And we can understand it to some extent. But let's get practical here. What does this look like in the life of a believer or of a group of believers to know that you have fruit? You have fruit unto holiness. There's a great illustration of this in Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Paul, in opening his letter to the Colossians, gives thanks. He gives thanks to God. 
And I want you to read this with me, starting in verse 3. And let's see the reason why Paul is expressing thanks, why the apostles are expressing thanks to the Lord. He says in verse 3, We give thanks to God and Father, excuse me, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world. And notice, it is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So, Paul, the apostles, they are rejoicing in the Lord because they know that the Colossians are fruitful. And you say, how, does, how do they know? What was their fruit? He identifies two things in this passage, faith and love. Faith and love. Look what he says. Your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Faithfulness, love, two of the fruits of the Spirit that we just looked at, are being exercised here in this church. And how is that fruit produced? He says, it's the word of the truth of the gospel that has come to you. That seed from the sower has been scattered on your hearts and is bringing forth fruit. So where is the power, brothers and sisters? It's in the word of God. It's in the word that goes forth and brings forth fruit. And what's the evidence that the seed has, in fact, taken root and brings fruit? They were believing in Christ and they were showing love for all the saints. The love of God. This is how the apostles knew the word bore fruit in them. Again, Jesus' words, you will know them by their fruits. You must, because every true Christian bears fruit. Let's keep going in um, verse 9 of Colossians 1. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So why is it that the apostles are not ceasing to pray, but continuing fervently in prayer for this group? For more fruit. For more fruit. They had already seen some evidence of fruit, the, the faith and the love. But the will of the Lord is that their fruit would abound in every fruit. He says that you may be filled. That means literally to the brim, liberally supplied with what? The knowledge. Knowledge. The Greek word means a precise and correct knowledge of what? Of his will. His will. His revealed will. This is his revealed will that we have. He wants them to know his will, to be filled with the knowledge of his will, and uh, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Such a wonderful word also in the Greek. It, it, it refers to the flowing together, the confluence of two rivers. So he's saying, I, I want you to be able to mentally put together, spiritually put together, the streams of God's wisdom in order to understand their cohesive truth. Isn't that what we're doing as we study the Word? We're learning line upon line, precept upon precept, and it is in fact the wisdom of God and spiritual understanding that translates all those data points into a cohesive truth, 
a confluence of understanding that is spiritual that all points to the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So here's a question, brothers and sisters. Who is the fruit ultimately for? It's for the Lord. That you would walk worthy, pleasing him, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work. Not just in faith and love, but in every good work of the Spirit of God, which he wants to develop in his people. Peace. These are actions. We have peace with God. We now are peacemakers toward each other. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the full panoply of the fruits of the Spirit He wants to evidence in our lives. So when we are talking about having fruit, bearing fruit, we're not talking just about the works that we do in the name of Christ. That was the error of those who in Matthew 7 came to the Lord and and said, Lord, Lord. They claim a knowledge of him. They call him Lord. And they say, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons and done many mighty wonders or works, miracles in your name? And what does the Lord say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, workers of iniquity, you who practice sin. You're still slaves of sin. You've never been set free from that. You love your sin. So your fruit is not just, Lord, look at what I'm doing for you. That's what their problem was. They were all pointing to themselves. The fruit of the Spirit is God's work in us for him. His character on display in our lives so that we are now resembling His Son more and more. That's how you know you have fruit in your life and in each other's lives. False professors, false teachers, false religions all have one thing in common with regard to fruitfulness. They don't have it. They're fruitless. Um, It's very interesting the way Jude calls false teachers late autumn trees without fruit. Um, Late autumn trees should signal very fruitful, full of fruit. But he says, without fruit, twice dead in fact, totally dead, pulled up by the roots. There's no life because the roots are not deep in the ground, being sustained by the life-giving water and nutrients of the soil. That is the case with all false professors, false teachers, and false religions. You remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree, that interesting account that we read about? He um, saw a fig tree from a distance. He was hungry. So what was he hoping to get from the tree as he drew near? Fruit, food. And as he approached, the tree looked, it appeared fruitful because of its flush of leaves, but in fact it had no fruit on it at all. And he cursed the tree and he said, may you never bear fruit again. Why? That was a picture of the apostate religion of Judaism at the time of Jesus. They appeared to be fruitful, speaking the word of God, trying to be as religious as possible. And yet they were oppressive, wicked, filled with unrighteousness, fruitless. And God in the Lord Jesus Christ pronounces his curse on them. And that that curse was fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was leveled. The people were scattered. But true disciples of Christ are always fruitful and abounding. 
in fruit more and more. Did you know that even in old age, God's fruit trees still bear great fruit? So wonderful. Psalm 92, 12. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He that grows like a cedar in Lebanon, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. There's no diminishment in the ability to make fruit in old age. You get better as you go by God's grace because it is his life that is sustaining you and producing the fruit in you. So what are we saying? We're saying all Christians have their fruit. They have fruit now. This is a present tense reality for all of us who are truly born again. It is a fruit of the Spirit, which is the character, the attitudes of Jesus Christ, his very life that is being developed in you and me. That fruit is being produced in you by a sovereign work of God. He's made us new. How? By grafting us into the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good tree. Um, in the analogy of the, the sower and the seed, the Lord is the one who tills up the bad soil of our hearts, making it good so that he can scatter his seed and into the soil of our hearts and bring forth fruit even into old age. And all the fruit ultimately is for him. For him. Yeah, we recognize it in each other, just like the Apostle Paul and the Apostles recognized it in the Colossian church. We look for that. But the fruit, the glory of that fruit, the enjoyment ultimately is for the landowner who plants us and comes with every right to take the fruit that is his. So the purpose of freedom, I hope you see, is clearly fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. The second purpose of fruitfulness is, what is the, excuse me, the second heading is really the purpose of fruitfulness. What is that? Look what he says here in verse 22 of Romans 6. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness. Those two words are very important. The purpose of fruitfulness is always holiness. What is that? Holiness is the word for sanctification. It means to be set apart. And it's set apart in two ways. It's set apart from our sin and set apart unto the Lord for his purposes. For something to be sanctified is to be set apart or devoted to, prepared for, the use of the master. That's the idea of holiness. And so, as you produce fruit, you are becoming more and more holy, Paul says. Your fruit is unto holiness. It, it leads to further holiness, which is what? To be more like Christ. And as you are being set apart more and more for his service, or excuse me, more and more set apart by the fruit he's producing in you, you are more useful for his service. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, meaning the vessels of dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here, Paul's instruction to Timothy is, there is a practical element of this sanctification that you need to be aware of. How is it that we can cleanse ourselves from the dishonor of a dirty vessel and be sanctified and useful for the master? How can we have our fruit unto holiness? What's our part in this? Well, practically, it was Romans 6, verses 12 and 13, which says this, 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Stop doing that. But instead, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, your whole selves, all of you, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the practical instruction. Or you could think of it this way. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Separate yourself from sin and from your old patterns of sin. We have a responsibility to do that. Those who have been set apart for for the Lord also set themselves apart for the Lord. That's the key. From what is unclean. He's changed our hearts, right? We don't love sin anymore like we used to. So sin now is an unclean thing. It's like leprosy. We don't want anything to do with it. We don't want to touch it even. That's the conviction that he's building more and more in us as we grow in grace. In other words, stop forming unholy alliances with your own flesh, with the lust of the world, and with the devil himself. You had all those alliances before. You've been broken from those alliances now. You've been brought out from that kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Practice righteousness now. There's the evidence that you have fruit to holiness. You lead a holy life. It's not hard. The word is clear. So holiness, I hope you're seeing, is not a nice to have. Like, as if trusting in Christ is the main thing so that you don't go to hell. And now um, try to live the best you can so that you become more holy over time, maybe. That's not what he's saying at all. Holiness is not optional. It's actually required if you want to have any hope of heaven at all. It's required. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the Lord says, Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. You will not see him in salvation if you have no holiness here. In Revelation chapter 20, very interesting passage, a passage with a lot of debate in terms of views of eschatology. But there's something very interesting related to this topic of holiness that is brought out in Revelation chapter 20, um, verse 6. He says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Very interesting. First resurrection, what is that? This first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, loved ones. All who have been raised with Christ, Think now of Romans chapter 6. We've died with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. How? We don't have new bodies yet. That's that's not the resurrection he's talking about. We've been raised spiritually to newness of life. This is the first resurrection. And notice, everyone who has a part in this first resurrection, who has been brought alive spiritually, is called blessed, happy, joyful. That means exceeding, transcending the, the conditions that we go through a transcendent joy in the Lord, and holy. Everyone who has a part in the first resurrection is described as holy. Over such, the second death has no power. And the second death he's going to describe later in verse 14 as death in Hades. 
uh, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's the lake of fire. It's eternal death. Those who have been raised in the first resurrection will not be in the second death. Second death has no power over them. Why? They are described as blessed and holy now. That's you and that's me. So holiness is not an option. And those who think that their, their freedom, or their understanding of this freedom that they've been given in Christ, freedom from slavery to sin is, is given really as a license to sin or an insurance policy to sin, needs to wake up. Those people are um, in a dangerous position. That's the attitude of the antinomian, the lawless person who, frankly, remains under the wrath of God, who is an enemy of God's, who doesn't love God at all. He loves his own sin. No. The instruction is clear in Scripture. We are not to use our freedom as a cloak for lawlessness, covetousness, sin. We're not. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul to the Galatians. Peter, same thing. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as slaves of God. Our freedom is to be exercised in love to the brethren and slavery to God, which is all the same thing. So freedom leads to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness leads to holiness for the Lord, not for self. And I think it's important at this point just to pan out a little bit in our discussion because, you know, I'm intentionally taking a lot of time on fruitfulness this week because this is not just like a, you know, an addendum to what it means to be a Christian. This is not just a, by the way, all Christians are also fruitful. No, no. This is central to really the purpose of God in creating man in the first place. Fruitfulness. This gets to the heart of why God created us. You remember in the Genesis account, the creation mandate, God tells the man and the woman, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over the earth, subdue things. As the Lord has given you dominion, you exercise that as a representative of him. Why would he say multiply and be fruitful or be fruitful and multiply? Is that just for the sake of filling the earth, just to fill the earth? Man was created in whose image? God's. God's image. And so God was saying, multiply my image throughout the earth. The glory of God. I want you, mankind, to set it on display for all creation. That they would see my glory throughout the earth. That was the purpose for man originally. What happened in Sin. Well, you remember in the garden, there were many trees that God created. Trees that were not just good to the eye, pleasant to the eye, beautiful looking trees, but good for food to eat as well. And within that group of trees, in this, the middle of the garden, really, there were two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which belonged to the Lord. They were not to partake of that tree. That is God's domain alone. And the tree of life the tree of life. Those were the trees. And you know the story. Adam and Eve sinned by partaking that which was forbidden and they died. 
not physically right away, but they died spiritually instantly. They were separated from God and the life of God. We saw this in Romans 5, very well summarized in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, rather than the image of God being multiplied throughout the earth as God had intended originally, death was replicated throughout the earth and its image. Fruitlessness. Man had sinned that corrupt nature resulted in bad trees making bad fruit. Man living for his own glory and not for the glory of God. Man rebelling against God, showing and proving that he was spiritually dead. And so the earth was filled with corruption and violence. And then you know the story. In Genesis 6, God looked on the wickedness of men and it was so rampant that he wiped all of them out with the exception of Noah and his family, the grace of God. The grace of God. But here's the point, that each son of God from Adam was created to be an image bearer. Adam, Noah, Abraham, and then very interestingly later, Israel as a nation were called the son of God. The son of God. The Lord said, my son, my firstborn, in Exodus 4.22, referring to Israel. So Israel as a nation, that son of God was to bear his image, how? As a nation, a light bearing the glory of God, showing it forth to all the pagan nations surrounding it. Were they able to do that? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5 and let's see God's description of these image bearers and what they have done after what God has done for them. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. And it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So Israel as a nation here is described as a vine. A vine that was planted by the Lord himself. A choice vine. And God did everything that was required for growth and for fruitfulness. He took care of them. He established them. He first tilled a barren ground. He planted them after bringing them out of Egypt. He watered them. He protected them. He put a hedge around them. 
and he cared for them as his own. And that's why he says in verse 4, what more could have been done to my vineyard than that I have not done in it? Did he not send his prophets to his people who spoke the word of God as rain from heaven to water the soil of their hearts? Did he not send his priests in order to stand between them and the Lord and pray for them and offer sacrifices for them for their sins and to teach them the word of God? Did he not give them kings in order to rule over them with equity and righteousness in the kingdom? He did everything that was required for good growth. Why then did it bring forth wild grapes? What's the answer to that question? Because the problem was not God, it was them. The problem was their sinful hearts that needed to be converted. They were bad trees or bad vines making bad fruit. Wild grapes, he calls them. They needed to be born again. And so as a nation, Israel is, is torn down, is burned and their wall of protection is removed and they're laid waste and God says I'm not going to bring more rain because when I expected good fruit which he defines here as justice equity rightness righteousness he finds oppression instead that's the bad fruit he looks for righteousness but behold a cry for help there was no righteousness Yes, there were individuals within national Israel who had trusted in the Lord and they were declared right. But as a nation, as a son of God, they were failed in their calling as a vine. And so God takes them out. And we see this time and time again as he delivers them to captivity and then ultimately lays their land waste after the Lord Jesus Christ is rejected and 40 years has gone by, 70 AD, they're, they're, they're destroyed. Now, there's no son of God still who is able to fulfill the creation mandate of imaging God and the earth as they ought to. So what does the Lord do? He sends his only son, his only begotten son, who leaves the throne of heaven where he is worshipped and adored by the heavenly family. Innumerable companies of angels bowing before him. He leaves that glory and humbles himself greatly, taking on the form of a man. And he humbles himself unto the point of death and death on the cross for his people. But in that process, he lives a perfect life of righteousness. Everything he does is right. He always obeys the Father. So he is fruitful. In fact, he's the only fruitful son who bears good fruit to the Lord always, accomplishing exactly what God had intended for man originally, but man could not do because of his own sin. Now, turn with me to John 15, which was our opening call to worship. This is so important to see this connection now regarding the vine. What does the Lord Jesus Christ himself say in John 15, verse 1? I am the true vine. Stop and think about that just for a moment. What is he identifying with there? He's identifying with Israel. Israel was the vine that was planted. We just read that in Isaiah chapter 5. But Jesus is saying they were not the true vine. Israel as a nation is not the true vine. They were only a type. They were a, a shadow pointing forward to the true vine. And Jesus says, I am that true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Sometimes that's confusing for people because they say, well, how can you be a branch that's connected to Jesus and yet not bear fruit? These are nominal Christians, Christians in name only, who say that they're connected to the Lord, 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 but they're not truly emanating from him. They're not grafted into him, so they, they don't bear fruit. He that does not bear fruit, my Father, takes away. The idea is carries away to judgment, to be burned. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes. That, that refers to chastening. That refers to trials, hardship, tribulation. He does that for every good branch in order to what? Bear more fruit. To bear more fruit. To be more fruitful. I was looking into this um, with uh, like a horticultural university website that was talking about pruning vines, uh, grapevines. Why do you prune the cane where you do? It's so that you, it promotes growth. Well, how does that happen? A, a rush of nutrients from that same undisturbed root system is now feeding a smaller plant area on top of the soil because you've trimmed it back so much. And so all the nutrients from that same root system are now feeding a smaller area, which, which makes them more fruitful. And all those nutrients rush to the point where they were cut. So we also, who are fruitful in Christ, the Lord is going to make us more fruitful, and he does that through trials. I want you to see that here in John 15. And then look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That's very interesting. Why would he say that there? Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Loved ones, Jesus is saying, you are already clean. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What is that word? Forgiven. You've been cleansed. He's talking about your justification. He's saying, you disciples have already been justified. I've cleansed you by my word. Now, verse 4, abide in me. In other words, keep hearing my word. The word that cleansed you initially in your justification is the same word that is going to cleanse you in your sanctification. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. We have no ability to make fruit of ourselves. We must be abiding in the vine. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So this now brings us back to the parable of the sower. Those that don't abide are those that don't remain. They don't last the sun comes and scorches them, or the thorns come and choke them out. The point is they don't persevere. But those who persevere, continuing to hear the word of Christ, are fruitful. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So here we have a picture of fruitfulness, which is what? Learning to ask that the Father's will would be done. We are, our wills are being aligned with his wills in prayer so that this is an evidence of fruitfulness. We want what God wants. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Not just some fruit, but much fruit. 
And so, in this way, you will be my disciples. So, the Father is glorified in that the people of the Son would bear much fruit. And the only way we can do that is by abiding in Him, which means to continue hearing His Word because we love His Word. We want to hear His Word. And it's His Word which is watering the soil of our hearts and causing us to be more and more fruitful. That's how we bear fruit. We abide in the Lord. We set our minds on His Word. We let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. Hmm. So, is this some marginal truth that we have our fruit to holiness? No. I I hope you can see this is central to the purpose of man from the very beginning Man, because of sin, did not complete this mandate. But now Christ, as the true vine, he has completed the mandate. And all who are in him are completing the mandate as well. Praise the Lord. You know what's interesting about that tree of life that we talked about? That tree shows up again in the book of Revelation a couple of times. But I just want to point out this one instance, the, the second instance actually, in Revelation chapter 22. Listen to this. This is a picture of life in the new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. The old has been uh, wrapped up, burned, destroyed. The new has come. Listen to Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is so interesting to me. Um, It's interesting that there's only one tree that's mentioned in this new Jerusalem. Compare that with the many trees that were made by God in the Garden of Eden originally. There's one tree that's identified here And it's a tree that is eminently fruitful. It bears 12 fruits, a fruit every month of the year. In other words, it's constantly fruitful. Why do you think it is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is one tree when we are all joined with the Lord in this glory that is to be revealed? Why aren't there thousands or millions of trees? Now, um, this is my best guess, but here it is. I'm going to give it to you. Jesus Christ is that tree of life. We've been grafted into him. So our identity is totally in him, and it's only then that we are able to be fruitful constantly. In heaven, in the new, when the new heaven comes down and becomes a new earth, we are going to be fruitful always because we are grafted into Christ. We're joined to him. He is our fruitfulness. I I love that. So the purpose of freedom, fruitfulness. The purpose of fruitfulness, holiness. And now what's the purpose of holiness? He says this, and the end, life everlasting or everlasting life. This is back to Romans 6 now. The final purpose of holiness is not just holiness. The final purpose of holiness is everlasting life. So Paul is once again saying, look to the end. 
Consider the end, just like he did in verse 21. And he's saying this, the end of slavery to sin is death. We know that. But the end of slavery to righteousness is everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, what is that? What's the connection with everlasting life and holiness? The words themselves mean life and no beginning or no end. Everlasting. But the emphasis is really not so much on the length of time as is on the quality of life lived. The quality of life. I want to give you the Lord's his own definition for eternal life. This is John 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, that is eternal life. It is what? The knowledge of God. It's to know God, how? By faith here, and afterward by sight. It is eternal life. It is literally the life of God we're talking about. We've been brought into that fullness and richness of existence that God himself enjoys, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ himself is the source of everlasting life. He is Alpha and Omega. That means beginning and end. But ironically, there is no beginning and no end with everlasting, eternity. In other words, he encompasses all of this life. It is his life and we are sharing it with him. In fact, it's by grace that the gospel was preached to us. This was the purpose the gospel was preached to us in 2 Peter chapter 1. That we might enter into his life and share with, his, with, share with him. This is life eternal. It is the knowledge of God. Remember that. So here's the connection. And this is really the, the major recurring theme of Scripture. God means to be known. He has disclosed himself. He did this, we saw this at the beginning of Romans. He discloses himself to all men. How? In creation. The creation evidences that he is. That his infinite attributes are on display for us to see. He also gives us a conscience to know right and wrong. God has disclosed something of himself as a creator to all men. We're without excuse. No one is an atheist, truly. But he reveals himself as Savior in a very special way. In fact, it's described by Paul to the Corinthians as the Lord shining the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts. That's how he discloses himself to us and that brings him great glory. So this is eternal life, the knowledge of the Holy One. We've entered into eternal life already by faith in Christ. We know something of him by what this word says. And brothers and sisters, we will see him and know him fully one day. By sight, not by faith anymore. This is what John says when he says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, the end of holiness is what? That we're going to be like him, like Christ. And when we are like him, we shall see him as he is. That means full knowledge. So there's the connection. Holiness leads to eternal life. What's that? Full knowledge of God. 
And it starts here and now. And we are growing in that by God's grace. Um, I just want to close with um, a reference back to Psalm 80, which we started with in the corporate reading this morning. And tying together, I I hope, all we've learned about this wonderful vine that was um, typed by the nation of Israel and fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. Um, This plea of the psalmist Asaph in verse 7 of Psalm 80, he says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its bows, another word for branches. She sent out her bows or branches to the sea, that is the Mediterranean, and her branches to the river, the great river, the Euphrates. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, the wild beast of the field devours it. This is a picture of Israel as it has been allowed to be ravaged by the Lord. He has allowed the beasts of the field, the pagan nations of the world to come in and and lay siege to it and destroy it. And he says in verse 14, return we beseech you. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine, the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It's burned with fire. It's cut down. So here's the question. Has God visited this vine? Has he visited this vine or has he allowed it to just burn and and be destroyed? Brothers and sisters, he has visited this vine. How? In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine, whom he has established and we in him so that we will never be destroyed. We will be fruitful and flourish. Look what he says in verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Upon the Son of Man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Brothers and sisters, unlike Israel as a nation, national Israel, who sought their righteousness by the works of the law, by and large, as a nation. Again, there were individuals who trusted in the Lord. But by and large, they sought their righteousness by the works of the law. We who are in Christ, we have sought the righteousness of faith that will never depart because Christ will never depart. He is planted, he is established, he is fruitful, and we connected to him are bearing his fruit in the world. Brothers and sisters, do you have your fruit to holiness this morning? That's really the question to ask. Do you see it in yourselves? Do others see it in you? If you do, take heart. Your end is everlasting life, according to the scriptures a full knowledge of God, a joy that you cannot imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man that which God has prepared for them that love him. There is a great glory that is yet to be revealed for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who bear his fruit. If you do not have your fruit to holiness, however, 
your end, the Bible says, is called the second death, the lake of fire that burns forever, where the worm does not die, where there is constant torment. Brothers and sisters, friends, may no one who hears this word of God fall into that trap of eternal damnation. Repent. Repent. Turn to the Lord and you will be saved. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He's clear about that. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He is a Savior and he is willing to receive you. Come and take hold of him by faith and you will be saved. Christian, do you want assurance this morning that you're going to heaven? Don't look to your fruit. Look to Jesus Christ. And as you look to Him and abide in Him and hear His Word and consume His Word, He will make you fruitful and that fruit will be evidence to all. The purpose of freedom is fruitfulness. The purpose of fruitfulness is holiness. The purpose of holiness is eternal life, a full knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, now we ask that you would take um, your own word, which is mighty and powerful, and cause it to take root deep in the soil of good hearts and to bring forth much fruit for the glory of God. Lord, we thank you for these simple yet profound truths that we will spend a lifetime exploring and as we do, the water of your word is washing over us and is setting us apart more and more for your service as we are becoming more fruitful for our master. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.